This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with author Fiona Harari. She has written a book called We Are Here, Talking with Australia's Oldest Holocaust Survivors. It's out through Scribe Publications. Yes, you are tuned to 3 FM. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And as I said before the break, I uh, now get to speak to uh, a, an author and a, a journalist, Fiona Harari, who has done a great amount of research and interviewing to compile and put together a beautiful book. It's called We Are Here, Talking with Australia's Oldest Holocaust Survivors. Uh, She will be in Melbourne next week, so um, make sure that you check her out. There is, um, I believe it's a Jewish Writers' Festival uh, coming up next week. And uh, this book is out through Scribe Publications. So uh, I'm really excited now to talk to Fiona. Hello, Fiona. Hi, Amy. Hi. And uh, in in terms of your background, um, just before we get into the content of this book, your um, certainly a lot of your career has been in journalism, uh, and now you're, you've written this book, and you've written obviously a, a book previous to this as well. What was what was the I guess interest um, for you with that journalistic background to compile a book and put together a book that is obviously. It has engaged a lot of research, but it's also been a very hands-on, um, personal, person-to-person type of project. Yes, well, look, I had I, I live in Sydney, but I had actually grown up in Melbourne in a Jewish community, and quite unusually um, for someone who'd grown up in Melbourne in the 70s in a Jewish environment, my family did not have anyone in the Holocaust, but it was something that I always knew about intrinsically. You know, if I would go down to the kosher butcher shop with my mother as a child, I remember in all likelihood as the butcher leant over to give you a piece of salami, you would see a number tattooed on his arm. It was one of those... I had teachers at school who had gone through the Holocaust. Lots of my friends' grandparents had gone through it. So I can't tell you when I ever began knowing about it. It's more that I never did not know about it. And it was always just something that sat there in the back of my mind. And seeing the numbers that had been tattooed on people's arms in concentration camps, seeing that in sort of walking down the street in St Kilda as a kid was just as commonplace as perhaps as seeing um, a World War One veteran in those days walking down the, or hobbling down the street with one leg of his trousers pinned up. So in both cases you knew that something terrible had happened to them but you just didn't think very much into it. Over the years, I've written all sorts of features as a a feature writer for The Australian and also for Good Weekend more recently. Um, And so I'm always looking for stories. And it occurred to me that Australia has one of the highest per capita rates of Holocaust survivors in any country, second only to Israel. And those survivors are dying. They're of old age. So here's a group of people who were never supposed to have lived under, especially if they were Jewish, um, they were part of Hitler's final solution. Not only did they survive the Holocaust, but they'd lived um, incredibly long lives. So I I started wondering, what do we need to ask survivors while we still can before it's too late? And the journalist in me wondered, well, what happened next? There are many accounts of what happened to people during the Holocaust, 
but not that many people have spoken or written about what happened after 1945. And so I decided to do a book on living, if you like, how Australian survivors, people who were adults when the war ended, how they took those terrible war years and how it shaped their unexpectedly long lives. Yes, and as you say, they have lived really long lives. Uh, the, every chapter talks about their um, their name, if they've changed their name uh, from their original name, and also uh, where they were born, but the year. And really, we have some people who have been born in times like 1919, 1924. These people have um, seen, really, uh, they were born just after the end of the First World War and have seen, I guess, many wars since. Uh, but this particular war, World War Two, had a massive impact uh, on the Jewish population. And obviously, they uh, were the predominant uh, group in terms of those that were targeted. But as you write, uh, it, they, it wasn't just Jews. There were also uh, Romanis, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, homosexuals, those who were disabled. Uh, but we in this book and you in this book are talking about those uh, Holocaust survivors that were Jewish and some were strongly religious and some weren't. Um, some have said that they were agnostic or weren't even really aware that they were Jewish or it wasn't a prominent part of their identity. So there's such a great range of people that you have spoken to in this book. And I guess what I have always found interesting is in the history of the Holocaust and um, how those who have survived uh, dealt with it was that really there was a period between the end of World War II and uh, around 1961 where there was a great deal of silence and there was whenever uh, Holocaust survivors spoke about their experience, a great deal of scepticism and disbelief from those who didn't experience it firsthand because it was just so extreme, so distressing that uh, a lot of people couldn't even imagine that these kind of things have happened, such as the concentration camps um, that were across uh, Germany and, and Eastern Europe. So uh, let's talk a bit about the experiences, experiences of those in the book and, uh, and how they diverge and also how they have similarities. And I think it would be great to start with the first chapter um, because it is a particularly interesting story about... Uh, two, well, twins, uh, Annetta Abel and Stephanie Heller, and they were born in Yugoslavia in 1924. And uh, they certainly had um, a really horrific experience in terms of uh, their time with uh, the kind of, well, sadly, very well-known um, doctor from Auschwitz, Dr. Josef Mengele. And he conducted so many experiments on people at Auschwitz uh, but this um, is a particular story whereby they were subject to too many experiments and in some ways that was um, part of what may have saved them from being killed. Uh, can we talk a bit about their lives and um, I mean your impression of them is really interesting too and in, in their personalities and how they're quite uh, different so I just I'd love to hear from you about uh, their story first and then we can look into um, you know how they've articulated their story. Okay so what I should say first up is that I decided that for this book 
I wanted to interview only people, who, survivors who had adult memories of the Holocaust because clearly there were, unbelievable though it may seem, many children who, were, who suffered terribly during it. But a child's memory is obviously quite different to an adult's. So I thought what I need to do first is to interview people who are adults and get their impressions while we still can because obviously they're older. So everyone that I've interviewed was at least 18 when the war ended. So therefore, everyone in this book, all 18 of them, were born in 1926 or earlier. I started the interviews in 2016. That meant that everyone that I interviewed at the time of these very long interviews we did was at least 90, and the oldest person was, was 102. Um, they all had to be and were mentally and physically strong enough to undergo really hours and hours of very rigorous interviews. Because obviously in order to look at how they've lived, we also had to look in quite a lot of detail at what had happened to them during the Holocaust. So each person is a chapter and their chapter begins, as you say, with who they are, the name they were given at birth, where they were born and when. And then I write at the beginning of each chapter, in, I write about what happened to this person, who they were before the war, where they lived in Europe, what became of them and their family. And then the bulk of each chapter is them speaking the first person about how that shaped them afterwards. So the opening people that I begin the book with, as you say, are these twin sisters, Annette Abel and Stephanie Heller. Um, they live in Melbourne. I found them in the Guinness Book of Records because they are the oldest surviving twins in the world who were experimented on by that terrible Nazi doctor in Auschwitz, Joseph Mengele. So they were probably two of the first interviews that I did for this book. And I was travelling to Melbourne to spend several days with them and I remember thinking these are going to be some of the hardest days of interviews in my long career because just going over what they would have endured and the tests that they underwent, I just thought, let alone experiencing them, would have been terrible. And just, just hearing them, I was not expecting to have a great time. Well, <laughs> I could not have been more wrong. They are two of the most life-affirming people I have ever met. They are... Obviously, there was a lot of tears and difficulty talking about the war, but they have seized life in the most magnificent way. They live around the corner from one another in Melbourne. They see each other every day. They love each other and bicker in a way that is quite hysterical. And the most common phrase between them is, let me speak, or they've most recently started to say to one another, I'm just as old as you are and you can't tell me what to say, and they laugh, and they're now, I should say, 94. Um... They lost absolutely everyone in their families after the war. And there's actually a very lovely story associated with them with the cover of the book. So the cover of the book, we wanted to give the idea of life because this, understandably, most people associate the Holocaust with death. But survivors lived and I wanted to have the feeling of life on the cover. And the cover is a picture of yellow dandelions sort of growing out of the, a book and across the text. Um, one of the sisters, Stephanie Heller, uh, became a guide at the Jewish Holocaust Centre in Melbourne and she would, over the years, tell a lot of children her story. And she, like quite a lot of people in the book and like thousands of survivors around the world, gave a recorded testimony in the 1990s to a foundation that was set up by Steven Spielberg after the success of his movie Schindler's List. 
and he saw that there were so many survivors whose stories needed to be recorded that he encouraged them to to have them videotaped and Stephanie Heller was one of the people that did. Now before I went to interview her and Anetta in Melbourne, I sat down for hours and listened to their recorded video testimonies. And in that testimony, Stephanie mentions that one day they were sitting in Auschwitz-Birkenau when they weren't being experimented on, when they weren't carrying dead bodies, when they weren't being subjected to the most terrible things, and the sun had come out. And Stephanie sat down on the ground, and now there was no grass in Auschwitz, and I didn't know this until I visited Auschwitz last year, but apparently a desperate human being can eat grass, and so there was just dirt there. And Stephanie had a free moment in this day of unusual warmth and she sat down on the ground and she said she remembered the sun on her back and the warmth and she looked down on the dirt and there was a single yellow flower, a dandelion. And she said that it was the first bit of colour she'd seen in years and it was so vivid and so magnificent that she remembered looking at it thinking it was the most beautiful thing she'd ever seen and she wondered if one day she might have her own garden with yellow flowers. After I interviewed the sisters, they turned 93. And this is last year, one of their sons sent me a photograph because they were having a family party for their, or a family gathering to celebrate their combined birthdays. And they said, we don't want a fuss made. So they just had an afternoon tea with their immediate family. And their son sent me a photograph that he were these two sisters who'd lost absolutely everyone they knew. Um, and were related to in the war, and for their 93rd birthday between them, they had 35 direct descendants. So there's this beautiful picture of them with their 35 descendants, and some weeks later I actually travelled to Auschwitz to research my book because I realised that 17 of the 18 people in my book had either been in Poland or were sent to Poland or their families died in in camps in Poland, and, and I wanted to end my book by going there. And as I walked into Auschwitz, I was very keenly aware of all the people in my book who'd been there and who'd lost family members there. And I remember walking into Birkenau, the section where the twins were, and honestly, the very first thing I saw as I turned to my right was a patch of grass, and it'd been snowing early in the morning, but the sun came out suddenly. And there on this patch of grass, I noticed that there were these little yellow flowers, exactly as Stephanie had seen them. It seemed to me that there were 35 of them in this patch, which sort of almost seemed like a lovely symbolism of, of the number of family members that the twins now had. And so it seems quite appropriate when we designed the book that, that, you know, if we wanted to give the idea of living, that somehow we could incorporate these yellow flowers into the cover, which is what I'm happy to say we did. And it is a really, that's such a beautiful story, uh, which is, uh, it, it talks about and it does highlight, I guess, that there are positive um, elements of those people's lives after um, or since their experience during World War Two, And there is, you know, as you say, a bit of a diverse experience there. And these two sisters are optimists. They're very positive and they seem quite hilarious. Uh, and obviously, Annetta, her first line uh, when she's speaking uh, is that we are very stubborn, both of us. We continually quarrel, but we couldn't be without each other. And that's why 
there both together in Australia. And uh, and one of the experiments that Mengele conducted or, well, he got partway there, he didn't complete it, was uh, that he, he infused them or transfused them with blood from male identical twins in the hope that he could force them to reproduce and create and test whether they could uh, produce then identical twins um, themselves. So, I mean, that's something... And they would have all... I, I should add there yes. that the plan was that the male twins and, and Etta and Stephanie and whatever children they bore would all have then been killed. Exactly. Uh, mm. it, it certainly was only to test a theory and not to to see them live out their lives and continually study them. Um, and, and they're experience uh, is, you know, really interesting uh, in terms of the fact that when the the advance of Allied troops occurred, that uh, experiment was interrupted and they were sent on a death march in 1945 and uh, and then went on to, to two more camps and emerged from an unguarded barracks in March 1945. So they've been through so much and that's, uh, and you open the book with this story of these fascinating and uh, a great bunch of sisters, these two sisters, who are both very strong and, and smart. Um, but then I, I, you know, was struck by just that how when we moved on to the next chapter and the next person, um, you know, how different their experience was. And I was picking up the commonalities, but also some of the real differences. Um, and one of the the kind of stories I think that resonated with me um, in the first person that I certainly, um, that I highlighted a great deal uh, was the one uh, by Shmulik Moses, uh, who was from Hungary. And his experience was different because, as you say, he felt he had not suffered enough to be Mm. considered a Holocaust survivor. And uh, he was largely uh, sent to be a to conduct hard labour, and that was uh, a huge punishment in and of itself and gruelling, and many, many people died every day from the conditions that they were under um, doing all of this hard labour. Yeah. Uh, and certainly, as you say, um, they you know were lacking in food, in shelter. So although their experience was different from some of those who were in concentration camps, um, they are still you know greatly physically and mentally affecting uh, and I think that his the way that he speaks about his experience um, is quite illuminating and uh, and one of the things that I particularly found interesting was that he said uh, when he was in Hungary and his family was in Hungary they were hoping that they would slip through the cracks that uh, that the Germans would retreat we thought we might be safe and so they didn't escape thinking that they they may be bypassed mm. and uh, and he doesn't have enough reasons as to why they didn't try and escape when they were in wagons he writes that or, or speaks that our wagons with the military when they transferred me to Poland were open we could have jumped out but where could we go? Mm, mm. Um, and, and he says, we didn't know there was a Warsaw ghetto uprising. We didn't know Auschwitz existed. That's why we went like sheep. And that's certainly one of the many uh, major questions that comes up a time and again is how much did each person know as to what was going on at, at any given point during the war? Well, that's interesting because obviously Hungary came into it much later and the brutality that was exerted against Jews, particularly in Hungary, was horrendous. 
just backtracking for a moment, I should add that whilst the twins are obviously incredibly life-affirming, there are two things that are common to everyone in this book. Um, and, and there is one person in the book who is not Jewish. He's the only person I was able to find in that age group in Australia who was not Jewish, uh, who had suffered terribly as well at the hands of the Nazis. And the, one, the two things that are common to everyone in this book is the fact... Uh, the one thing, actually, I should really say is the fact of luck. Luck is the one thing that they say is the reason behind why they're all alive today. One person would say to me, I survived because I always volunteered, and another person said, I survived because I never volunteered. So everything that they would might think... Uh, had protected them would be would be uh, struck out by someone saying the directly opposite thing. But they all agree that they are here today because of because because of luck. And the other thing I suppose is that although even say the twins are incredibly life affirming, it is difficult to describe the weight that they have carried around with them throughout their lives in the form of the legacy of the Holocaust, the memories of it, the loss of it. It is despite that that they're able to laugh and have, live lives today, which I find, you know, incredibly, you know, heartwarming because it doesn't go away. And in fact, if anything, as they've got older, um, long-term memories come to the fore as you age and they all pretty much talked about nightmares becoming more and more vivid as they've got into their 80s and 90s. Going back to Shmulek Moses, there was something particularly uh, that really resonated with me is when you talk about, he said, we didn't know what was going on. There was also the sense of belonging that comes through in a lot of stories. And he talks about being in this forced labour battalion and being forced to march here and there and do really horrible work and sleeping in fields in Europe in winter with open air with, with cattle and, you know, horrendous conditions. And he said that there was a point particularly where he's walking through his town of Balasajamat in Hungary one day and he talks about how it would have been relatively easy for him as he's being forced much through his town to have just walked away or run away from the from the group of people he was marching with. And he said, but it was that point I realised, where could I go? Who in my town that I'd lived in for my entire life would take me in? All the Jews had been thrown out. Um, if there was anyone who felt a desire to protect him, they would have risked their own life protecting him. And he, he thought to himself... If I ran into my home, someone would be living them now and they wouldn't give me protection in my own home. And he talked about that moment feeling very much that he was a stranger in his own home. And I think that that feeling for him really lasted a very, very long time as to where did he belong and where was home for him. Mm. And, and it was... Sorry. Sorry. One of the, just picking up on what you're saying, one of the things that he says is for thousands of years, we didn't realise that we were guests, tolerated guests in these countries. And so constantly um, there is this sense that, uh, you know, the, the Jewish people in many of the Eastern European countries and and also in Germany, um, were seen as different by some, but um, they often didn't necessarily see themselves as being different. There was a lot of, because anti-Semitism had festered away for so many generations in most countries in Eastern Europe, um, I learnt this very early on when I was doing this book. Those people who lived in Poland, I made it very clear, for example, that they were Jewish, not Polish, as though the two groups were 
mutually exclusive. And the more research I did, the more I realised, and in fact they were. As much as we like to believe that, you know, if you're, if you're Australian, if you can be in Australia, you can be, a, you know, Buddhist and Australian, or you can be Jewish and Australian, or you can be Muslim and Australian, it didn't work that way um, for a long time for people in Poland, particularly leading up to the war. And so for historical reasons, um, a lot of Jewish people lived in, in their own communities. There were people I had... I've got a particular woman in the book who, who considered herself... Um, much more assimilated, but there were definite divisions that existed, certainly in Poland. I don't know to what extent there was in Hungary. Um, I suppose one of the things with doing a story like this is that people have got 75 years to reflect, and he may well have felt that he was a stranger in his own country at that time, but he may also well have felt that only in hindsight, and it's really difficult to know when that feeling came in. But certainly after the war... Um, there were people, for example, who survived who wished to go back to their own hometowns and people would now say, well, why would you do that? Because if your home is your home and it's like any refugee around the world, most refugees, given the option, would want to be at home. That's where people want to be. But in many cases, people would say, return to their town in Poland and they'd get sort of, say, to Lodge or somewhere where there were big refugee centres and people would say to them, don't go any further, there is nothing left in your town. There are no Jews left, your home will be gone, there is nothing for you to return to. And so it was from that point that many of them decided to decide, well, where do I go next? Um, quite a lot would go to displaced persons camps, say, in Germany. And from there, they made their way to places that would accept them. And for many of them, the best option, sometimes the only option, but certainly a very good option, was to come to Australia because geographically it was as far away as you could get from, from Europe and everything that it's, you know, the memories that, were, that they held there. Indeed. And I think um, one of the stories that strikes me as well as being particularly interesting is uh, Joseph Helen, who is from Czechoslovakia. Uh, and he uh, had an experience. He was in uh, Birkenau uh, and certainly um, worked in a range of the areas in Birkenau. He was uh, basically worked in the kitchen there and then he moved to um, an area, a clearing area called Canada where he mm. sorted through inmates seized property and um, we know that there's a, a huge amount of property that the Nazis stole from those who arrived at concentration camps and then they utilised, uh, sold off and um, kept for various resourcing for their own army uh, for their own people um, and his story is one of survival and fighting and um, and really not and distrust I think is one of the things that he talks about a lot and that he he really didn't trust anyone there he, he writes or said I learned to be cunning to trust nobody I didn't trust my finger everything mm. had to be checked and double checked and to take calculated risks I didn't care about anything or anyone it was me 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 I wanted to survive and that 
um, kind of approach and the kind of level of survival mode that you need to go into um, to to be in this uh, horrible situation is, you know, extreme, obviously. And this is one of his experiences, one experience. But it's certainly a bit different from um, the others because he had some advantage in working in uh, that area called Canada and being able to trade goods uh, for food and uh, from those who were in the kitchen. So I'm really interested in uh, his story and how that's affected him later in life and his uh, latest successes in business. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I I realised, you know, some things seem ridiculous when you say them out loud, but it it became very apparent to me really early on that surviving is for almost everyone a singular experience. In almost every case in this book, the people here survived on their own. Uh, The twins were incredibly fortunate to have one another. There's another lady in my book, Marianne Schwartz, who survived amazingly with her mother until they were liberated, and at that point her mother died. Um, Joseph Helen was on his own from, you know, from his late boyhood years, sort of from his mid-teens. He was taken very early on into Auschwitz in a political roundup, actually, as I understand it, in Czechoslovakia, and he was taken into Birkenau. Now, the area that he was in, Canada, it was called Canada because it was a nickname it was given because it was known as a land of plenty. Um, and this was because every time, you know, people were told, pack your belongings, bring a few things, you're going to a camp where life will be better. And, of course, they were brought to Auschwitz. Everything was seized from them. Uh, they were told to go left or right. One way you were sent to the gas chamber, another you'd be sent to work in appalling conditions and you may well die quite soon anyway. And so... Whoever was sent to the, um, to to be killed, their possessions were taken straight from them and they all ended up in Canada. And so you had people arriving from all over Europe with an, a range of uh, possessions. There was, you know, there was crockery. There was, you know, if you go to Auschwitz, you can see all these things. You know, people bought shoe polish. People bought food. They bought silverware. And so... I mean, it wasn't a picnic, obviously, for Joseph Helen working there, but because he was in this clearing area and he slept there, he had access, like the other people who did, who worked there, to the food supplies that had been stolen off people by the Nazis when they arrived at the death camps. And so he was better fed because of that. Undoubtedly, his life extended longer because of that. But... He was on his own and his whole being, as for many people, and I think he just describes this much more clearly than others, is to survive and to survive for himself because it is such a singular experience. But I think it really carried through into his later life. He became an, he is an incredibly successful businessman. He's one of the largest Australian property developers in the US. He's actually uh, himself, through his private family company, has redeveloped a lot of downtown Los Angeles. Now, this is a man who survived the Holocaust and came out with nothing. Um, but it, it, it really, for the rest of his life, he says this, he, he found it very difficult to trust people, to form close relationships, to form close, meaningful friendships. Um, a lot of the people who've been in his life have been business associates. 
and in a sense, I suppose, and, and good luck to him, he's been able to translate that single-mindedness into something worthwhile for him. You know, he's been able to build a successful business and provide really well for his family. Um, I think there's a lovely story to him. We had, uh, the book was launched in Melbourne and we had a second launch in Sydney. And the 18 people in my book were living in Melbourne, Sydney and Newcastle. So... Seven of the 18 people uh, were from Melbourne and six of them were able to attend the launch in, in Melbourne and the seventh person, the only Melbourne person who wasn't able to be there was Joseph Helen and that was because he was, he was attending at the age of 90-something was in Los Angeles on business, which I have to say is probably a, a delightful triumph over evil. It's really amazing to think. Yeah, yeah. And he does say that his closest friend was his wife. And one of the things that um, links in with that idea of survival, which uh, in his story does stand out, is that he says, survivor's guilt. Are you kidding me? I never knew what is guilt. I was lucky to survive. I would kill to survive. That's my nature to fight. And so there are uh, a range of experiences. Some people feel huge amounts of guilt being the last remaining person in their family to have survived or also perhaps not to have um, gone with their mother or their sibling when they were taken away or, or not tried to prevent that um, separation from happening. But obviously, um, you know, doing that would have meant that they were sacrificing potentially their life as well. So there is this um, theme of guilt that is certainly uh, there throughout the book but Joseph's approach to it is is a bit different. That's right and and look there's 18 people in this book and there are 18 completely different responses to it which is not surprising. I mean, we all respond differently to life and to to other people's deaths, obviously. Um, I think for for a lot of people, I wondered if some of their their views had possibly been softened over the years because they're coming towards the end of their lives. Um, For many of them, as you said earlier, it was incredibly difficult when they got to Australia. You know, we, we have a sense, I think, a lot of times quite unconsciously of thinking oh well if you get to Australia just be grateful and everything's great here and on you go and these are people who had nothing who often couldn't speak another language the particular age group of people that I've interviewed were very often interrupted their education was interrupted at the end of high school most of them never got to go to have any sort of tertiary education there's one woman in the book who was meant to study law in Poland she couldn't because if you were Jewish in Poland at that point, you couldn't sit for exams. She was then accepted to study dentistry in Belgium, um, but the war broke out and she could never get there, and she never had a tertiary education. There are many examples in this book of people with untapped potential, um, with enormous brains, who were never able to realise their true potential. But most of them don't seem to even pay that much attention even to that. We might think that's in from the comfort of our positions in, you know, middle class Australia, we might, we might think that's a terrible thing. But if you think of the enormous list of things that they were dealing with, let alone what they'd seen, that the fact that they'd been brutalised, the fact that they're almost, in some cases, their entire families had been murdered, sometimes in front of them, they're, they're, they're incredibly grateful to be here. They've got to learn a language. They've got to find a job. They, they, might, they might, you know, this lady who was going to be a lawyer or a dentist ended up sewing buttons on in a factory in Australia and then did secretarial work and was incredibly grateful to have any job. Um, 
they had so many things to think of, let alone the past that was always sort of dragged around by their ankles, if you like, um, that... You know, they came to Australia and, and I just find it absolutely extraordinary the fact that they were able to to live with the shadow of the past with them and yet do all the mundane things that we do every day and might quibble about, you know, raise children and pack their lunches and, you know, get them off to school and to university and celebrate birthdays and organise everything that had to be organised. But the shadow and the weight of the past never left. They just had to learn to live with it. And it became like a shell for most of them. So some of them would talk about it and it was visible. Some of them would not talk about it. Some of them tried to talk about it in the early days, as he mentioned, and they weren't believed because their stories were so grotesque and so unimaginable that many of them did not talk about it again for a long time. And then, as he mentioned, in about 1961, I think was Eichmann was trial. His, his trial was televised and slowly people began to talk about things. And... It is difficult to underestimate how significant Spielberg's movie uh, Schindler's List was because that really brought the Holocaust and all of its horrors and survivor stories to the fore in a very commercial but effective way. And so by the time the 90s and sort of the year 2000 rolled around, you, started, you start to have seen that they've got... Survivors are talking, giving testimonies. Their Jewish museums exist around the world where a number of them would be guiding and relating their experiences. And I think what's really heartening now is that for many of the survivors who didn't talk for a long time, they're now actually being fated by people in a way that they could never have imagined. So in the space of all the decades they've lived in Australia, many of them have gone from being disbelieved to almost being given rock star treatment in many cases. People clamour to hear certain people in Melbourne and Sydney talk. Um, there was a, an article I read from Brisbane on the weekend referring to my book and, and the writer said that she was on a ferry in Brisbane and, and there was a lovely you know, European gentleman, elderly dressed, and he moved his shirt slightly, his, or his arm slightly, and his shirt, his shirt cuff moved and she was amazed to see that there were the tattooed fading numbers on his arm. And soon we won't see those people anymore because they will have died out through, through natural causes and because of age. And that's really why I felt it's so important to record their, not just their stories, but their impressions of life while we still had a chance. Yes, and I think that's what is um, the really key contribution here is not only how they recount their own stories, but how they've processed it and since moved in some cases from a feeling of um, wanting to seek retribution uh, and and sometimes even with specific uh, people from those camps, like um, one of the SS soldiers, uh, I believe Joseph really um, wanted to, to seek and find out after the war, but a lot of those feelings of anger and and um, wanting to seek retribution have since uh, kind of evolved into um, a feeling of acceptance or at least that not everyone was same the same and not everyone was guilty and there was a great deal of uh, bystander effect and that certainly um, in some of these cases those who have suffered look back and think if I were in their shoes what would I have done so I think that's also a really interesting perspective that they themselves um, have 
have and, and how they reflect on their life is really a fascinating journey to go on. Uh, Fiona, that I've, sadly, we're running out of time, um, but I just want to uh, finally close out this discussion by um, asking you what this has meant uh, for you and what you feel has been um, the most, I guess, fulfilling element of conducting a project like this. Well, that's a, that's a really lovely question, actually. I've been a journalist for over 30 years and, you know, I've been fortunate. I've worked in a lot of... T- I've done TV producing, I've worked in radio, but mostly I've worked in newspapers and magazines and as a feature writer. And I've been fortunate to do... to become involved with some fantastic people I've interviewed over the years on a range of topics. But this really, to me, is the most meaningful work that I've ever done not just because obviously you want people to buy books and you want readers to enjoy the books, but what I didn't expect was the satisfaction that some of, that the people in the book would, I think, to their own amazement, experience. And I'll give you two examples. Um, there's a lady in the book called Rena Schuldiner. Now, she's the very last person that I interviewed for the book. And she admits that she has responded in a very negative way to the world and the Holocaust afterwards that it's never left her and she basically says I'll be at ease when I'm dead. So hers is probably I think the saddest, starkest um, chapter in the book. There are some that are more life affirming. Hers is, she, she's, she admits that she's very bitter about it. When I finished doing each interview, so it, I did a number of interviews with each person and I, I then when I wrote up each chapter, I, I presented each person's chapter to them and I said, please go through it and make sure that this is correct and that I want your impressions to be as you see them. So I took the chapter along to Rena, who's a, a beautiful woman, and I, and I said to her, look, will I come back tomorrow once you've read it? And she said, no, 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 that's fine. And I said, well, will I go and have a coffee and you can read it and I'll come back in an hour? And she said, no, no, what I'd like is for you to sit here and read the chapter to me. And um, that was actually one of the most emotional moments of, of a, you know, a year's worth of work for me, um, possibly because it was the very last interview I was doing. But I read her chapter to her and and my voice was cracking at the end of it. I was actually really... It was, it was much more affecting to me reading it out to her than to reading it silently to myself. And, and she'd sat there just straight-faced throughout the whole thing and... When I finished reading the chapter, she allowed herself a half smile and she said to me, yes, that's right, that's exactly as it was. And I, and I first I thought, well, that's a bit surprising, her response, because of course it's as it was, that's what you said to me and, you know, I've recorded, you know, your words. But I realised as we continued to talk that she had this deep sense of satisfaction that after all these years, someone had taken the time to listen to her story, and she's just turned 96, to listen to her story, and that after all these years, her perspective and her account of what happened to her and her family and its implications as she's seen them had been noted, and that made her deeply, deeply satisfied. And the other example I can give you is there's a second chapter in the book is about a lovely man in Melbourne called Zygmunt Swistak. Now, Zygmunt is the only person in the book who's not Jewish. And he suffered terribly during the war. 
And unlike everyone else who came to Australia afterwards, he really didn't have anyone to talk to. And I think the survivors who turned up at the two launches realised this. They realised only really at the... I think a number of them realised that when they came to Australia, at least they had one another to talk to. But Zygmunt Swistak, apart from a couple of friends, really had no one to talk to about his experiences. And... The couple that he did have to talk to have, have died, so he's really been on his own. He's now into his 90s, and he admits that for a long time he was a very angry man. And when he was 86, his wife, who was much younger than him, left him. And he wasn't blaming her. He said it was because of the weight of my, my experiences. And she couldn't live with him any. She couldn't live with them anymore. Anyway, much to his amazement and my absolute delight, his 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 ex-wife came so happily to the launch for him with his family so it's been a very cathartic experience and I was just talking to him before and he recently went back to Poland to see his brother was killed during the war and he went to see his brother's girlfriend he's also in his her 90s and he said to me when he came back he said I was really concerned to go back but he said after I spoke to you and I knew that you'd been to Poland and you'd seen it a certain way, I, I allowed myself to go back there and, and to have a good time and he said and I said, Did you? And he said, Yes, I, I went back to Poland and I was able to have a good time and I really feel at peace now and to me that was the greatest gift of all. That's a really um, beautiful note to end our discussion on Fiona and uh, I really want to thank you for your time today in sharing your experience uh, writing this book and speaking with uh, Australia's oldest Holocaust survivors. It's really an important contribution um, to how we understand and think about the Holocaust. So thank you very much uh, Fiona for spending time with us today. Thank you very much. That was Fiona Harari and she's written a book called We Are Here, talking with Australia's oldest Holocaust survivors and it's out through Scribe Publications. You are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM with Amy. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.